This is the Sound Factory podcast from Sound Factory Productions. Doing it wrong, but doing it anyway. Hello and welcome to the Sound Factory podcast, a podcast about sound, music, creativity and collaboration. We're doing it wrong, but, but we're doing, doing it, it anyway. anyway. <laughs> I'm your host, Steve Kilpatrick, a.k.a. Sound Factory, and with me is Dr. Aniko Toth, a.k.a. Coco Vocals. Hello. Hello. And today we have with us the wonderful Justine Potter. Hello, Justine. Hi, Justine. Hello. Justine Potter is a producer and development executive for TV and radio across drama, comedy, and children's. She works with writers to develop and edit their scripts right up until the production crew start filming. She works with broadcasters including BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, and Sky in the UK, as well as American and European broadcasters, and for indies, including Red Productions, LA Productions, Savvy Productions, and Can Can Productions. She also ran BBC Writers Room North, giving many writers their first break into scripted commissions. Woohoo! <laughs> Very impressive. Well, Justine, that was a, um, a pretty extensive biography, but <laughs> how would you really get to the nuts and bolts of what you do if you were going to explain to someone? I mean, I tend to be the person, if a writer's got an idea or a script, I'm the person that can understand why it is or it isn't working and make and get it to the point it needs to be to be commissionable. And I am often the sort of I mean, I've done all sorts over the years, directed and produced in theatre and radio and TV, but I'm often the link between, I basically have a career stalking writers. So I'm the link between the writer, their ideas and the stories, and also between a production company and the broadcaster or whoever they're making the content for. So some of my job is sort of pitching and selling, but most of it is um, conversations with writers about killing people off and how it sounds and how it feels and what we should be doing and why. I ask why for 60% of my job. So yeah, that's me. It sounds to me like you're a little bit of a professional sounding board. Yeah, no, that's exactly what it is, really. And if I work with writers newer on in their career, then they've often got a brilliant idea and they're props and real authenticity to it because they're talking about something that they, they have an understanding of, but they've just got stuck. And it's quite difficult to see the wood for the trees. So they come to me and it's very obvious to me when I read something where it works and if it's a script, where it pings me out of the script and I'm suddenly not paying attention, where I've stopped caring and where it just suddenly makes sense or where it sags a bit or where there's so much stuff in there that I can't understand it. And so they come to me for that support, really. If it's um, a really experienced writer, one who can gain commissions just by their name, Weirdly, it's still quite similar. I did a drama for the BBC recently with a writer called Jimmy McGovern, who is very well known for social realist drama. And he was still as, don't show anybody the script. I'm sure this is rubbish. I'm not sure it's good enough, as everybody else, which was extraordinary to me because he's a genius and a hero. One thing that's popping right in my head now is when I was working for you on a radio drama, you sent me a script. I remember reading it on the train down to London and... Actually, like I had tears in my eyes. It was so emotional. I thought it was wonderful. But next time I spoke to you, you said, yeah, it's not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> I was so, 
Oh, so yeah, it's not ready. And then the next time it came back, two characters, I think, one character had been killed off and another two had been amalgamated. And and you're absolutely right. It was much, much better, but the layperson doesn't, doesn't see those potentials of how we could tighten up or make the story more emotive by by making these quite big structural changes yeah sometimes sometimes it's a tiny thing and sometimes i'll say this isn't working and the writer will say actually it's not that that's not working it's this other thing Mm. and that will explain that often it's just asking for clarity it just makes me really annoying to watch TV with because I will come up with the next line and it's always depressingly the next line. If it's a whodunit, I know. Um, and I really like being surprised, but I'm dis- depressingly not so surprised very often. There isn't much that surprises me. And if I'm listening to the radio, I'm often going, come on, come on, if it doesn't get there quick enough. But the thing I absolutely love about it is that it's not just me. So yes, there's a, so say if it's a radio drama, and there's, it's really neat and it's a tiny bunch of people, but there's the writer, there's then I direct and produce and script edit. But I also have the cast members and then I've got the sound engineer and editor and that can be the same person as the sound designer, but not necessarily. And then there's the people involved mm-hmm. in the sound world beyond sound design, which is the music side, which is where you and I have worked together often, Steve, either as sound designer or mm-hmm. as somebody composing work for these so I, it's just meant I've got to work with some really interesting people on in the sound world side of things. You know, any any arts project, the, the best ones are just greater than the sum of their parts, aren't they? So, so now and again, there's been mm. some of those moments where I've thought, oh my god, wow, this is incredible. And those two, those times, I can think of the two specific ones have always been because of the addition of music that's just made it beyond. So the two times in my life when I've had an experience that has gone beyond have been music related. And the first one, I was in a studio in the BBC and I did what's called a stage adaptation. So it's a show that's made for theatre, but then it's put onto the radio. And it was an adaptation of Vladislav mm-hmm. Spielmann's The Pianist, which has been made into a film. It's about a man who managed to hide out in the Warsaw ghetto during the war and he's a pianist and he can't make any noise. So he, he plays all the way through the war silently over a piano not to make any noise. And when he's captured, I don't want to give the whole plot away, but he is captured and, and, and his knowledge of the piano saves his life in some way. And the way it was done for the Manchester International Festival was Mikhail Rudy was the pianist, a very accomplished pianist, is playing all Chopin preludes all the way through. And alongside somebody just reading um, ex- almost like extracts from the novel, it's an abridged version. And it's really simple. So it's a voice mm. and a piano. But they're almost in dialogue all the way through. So the the performer, Peter Guinness, were, would say something and then the piano would echo it. And it was unusual for radio because you might hear a three-minute Chopin prelude. And it was a risk for Radio 4 because anybody tuning in might have thought they were on Radio 3. But when we made this, I was sat in the studio with a guy called Steve Rinker, who's the one of the main sound guys for the BBC Philharmonic. And we were listening, and I'm not an expert on classical music, despite being married to somebody who made the stuff for years. We were sat in the studio and I had these Chopin preludes just pouring over me. And then the voice came in and then out again. And it was, I can't, there's not a word to describe it, but it was just beyond. It was absolutely incredible. And it was so simple. Mm-hmm. That the that both the voice and the words and the story and the music did something together that was way greater than the sum of its parts. And that was phenomenal. 
And then the other time I think where I did have one of those moments is I work with a writer who's a very popular novelist called Val McDermott, and she does crime. She's a queen of crime. But she's a fan mm. of the the author John Wyndham, who does a lot of sci-fi stuff from the sort of, I'm going to say 40s, 50s-ish, um, was his main period of writing. And he did a, a piece called The Crack and Wakes. Roughly, it's about a story of these beings and beasts that go, that fall to earth and go underneath the sea. When and and when we don't like them being there, we attack them and they fight back and do it very very well and basically flood the world. But Val wanted to do it as a contemporary adaptation because really, I mean, it, his stuff is so prophetic and it worked within the sort of realms of climate change. If you take the story and bring it into now, it's unbelievably prescient. So we did that, but I managed to, uh, just by being bloody cheeky, cajole the BBC Philharmonic into doing the sound score for this live. And I got a composer, Alan Williams, to write the music. And he felt that with a very contemporary adaptation, he would go for that 1950s B-movie kind of full-on vibe. And it was absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. But it was done live, and you've got the actors and you've got the orchestra. And it, it was extraordinary. But the thing that I I was expecting it to be like theatre, where you would have the actors and the musicians together for a couple of weeks. When they said, you've got an hour mm. rehearsal with the orchestra for this two-hour drama, I had to, right. basically, I had to work with the actors for a few days before and they had to learn the sound cues and they also had to learn to be conducted by a conductor and they've never done that mm. because the, the sound and the music flowed. It was another character. The music was like the monster, the kraken, the the, um, mm. the onslaught of the rising of the seas. This, So I, I didn't get my two weeks rehearsal, but then I didn't know what it was like to work with an orchestra and I was so out of my comfort zone. It was horrible but it was also one of the best things I ever did because obviously orchestras are just extraordinary and watching the conductor with the actors who were terrified too and with the performers was wonderful all the musicians loved it because it was something a bit different and they knew the actors they all particularly liked Hams and Greg and then we got the audience mm -hmm. in and it was just incredible you can imagine this massive the act at the end of the um first drama is a point where these under the water sea creatures come out onto the beach and they have these like tendrils that come out and wrap people up and pull them under the sea and crash through this village and you've got the actors giving it large and then you've got Tams and Greg one of the actors is just grabbed by one of these sea tendrils and pulled and she just ends with a scream with the orchestra screaming behind her and it was phenomenal and I can't now even talk to you about musically what was happening I know it felt right I knew it it did the, it did mm. beyond the words I knew it was absolutely the right it was a really good choice of Alan's to stick with the period against the contemporary version and it was um greater than the sum of its parts it was extraordinary really extraordinary it was an incredibly successful radio drama and also the music sort of had a little bit of a life of its own as well didn't it some of it was performed at the proms I believe, which might possibly be a yes. first for radio drama. I don't know. Jarvis Cocker was doing a prom section or prom evening that was about under the sea. So this just fitted really well. So it ended up mm. being part of that. And it, for me, it was more, it was profound career wise because I'd made at that point, maybe a hundred plus radio dramas, no more. I mean, lots of them. Mm. I've been making them for about 10 years for the BBC 
although every story is different, I think if you do a lot of a similar sort of thing, you stop being scared. So, and you can just do it very easily. Mm. And I never felt complacent, but I, I just want, I wasn't scared. That's all I can say. I was terrified doing that. I mean, it, mm. I, I knew I was beyond winging it and I had no idea how it would work. And there were loads of technical reasons why, you know, instead of having an actor in a dead space, you're having them in a live studio and all of that, that it was really complicated. But afterwards it was a success. And it, I realized that I would never again be as scared making radio than I was at that point. And I kind of knew I needed mm. to move beyond radio drama. I'd pushed it probably as far as it could go. I'd done it and that was enough. So I needed to go and get scared in another field. <laughs> wow. Brilliant. That's a great transition. So tell us about your next adventure. I always wanted to make TV. I'd always thought I would do a little bit of radio and then just hop across the TV. But there's a real snobbery in TV land that radio is, is a sort of poor relation. Mm. And I would say the opposite. When it comes to me understanding story story mechanics and character i would say radio was the best grounding because you can't hide behind whizzy you've got the sound world but the words are it all and you if Mm. you haven't got those right there is nowhere to hide and i think tv can hide an average script behind beauty but yeah i'd always wanted to make tv i couldn't get across i did two, two years in radio drama then i did it in my own indie for about eight years i found it impossible to get across the tv so eventually a show eventually took me on a, to teach me how to script edit TV because it's quite different doing that to radio. The show was a show called Casualty, a medical drama on BBC One that's been going for about 40-something years. So I went down to Cardiff for six months and learned how to edit scripts TV style. And after about three months, I thought, okay, I, I'm not the right fit to stay on a, <clears throat> a show like that that is brilliant. But again, it's got a set form and a set shape and it I needed to do originally authored mm. stuff so I came back north I ended up getting a job on Coronation Street and that was as a script editor as well Coronation Street in terms of the way they have pitches in for stories they do story conferences the way they share the story ideas the way they everybody's quite equal in the room with ideas from a researcher to a top writer and the way it's run is like a just a well-oiled machine. So I learned so much about the craft of doing bigger shows and the craft of structuring something. And I did, I think I did about nine months with them. And again, knew that I would want to do original authored stories. I just want to tell those stories. And the ones that I, the joy of radio, I always got to tell. Often f- stories of females, often usually contemporary stories, and often something extraordinary that happens to somebody incredibly ordinary and just just finding that moment where you know somebody's life is thrust into something different and and I sort of obsessed with what makes them different and also stories about fairness and so on so I wanted a piece of that tv I ended up then working in the writer's room which was a good fit for me because the writer's room is a BBC service that develops new writers I got an opportunity to do a really odd project and I just sort of got a history of doing really weird shaped projects and somebody said do you want to produce tv I mean producing tv is a massive project management job and you kind of need to know all the roles in tv and Mm -hmm. I really didn't however you say yes and the job was the contact theatre in Manchester, a young people's theatre company in Liverpool. And they had a show called I Told My Mum I Was Going on an RE Trip. 
And it was a verbatim piece, which means it was just recorded, audio recording of people's real stories. And they were young women's stories of abortion. And the way they did it is the director had recorded maybe 100 people's experience of abortion. So these are doctors, nurses, individual, I mean, just everybody and anybody, young lads, what they thought of it, young girls. And then she boiled it down to these four characters who spoke all of the audio. But the way they did it is they had the person's real voice for the real recording on a headphone into the ear of the actor and the actor would hear it and then repeat Mm. it with their intonation, tone, accent, everything. That's how the theatre show was. And so the show that we did for BBC Two and BBC Arts was a translation of that onto TV. So that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And on the back of that and the writer's room, I got poached to go and work at LA Productions in Liverpool, who, again, often do quite um, a lot of stuff that's around social justice. They often tell more working class, ordinary stories than other production companies, Um, often very northern stories. And they work with Jimmy McGovern a lot. I mean, he's just a hero of mine. I just think he's a genius. And he's one of those heroes that you meet and they're nicer in reality when you meet them. We did a show that was on the BBC last year called Anthony. Oh, this is so, so up my street, this kind of project. Anthony, Anthony Walker was a young, very bright black lad in Liverpool. And in 2005, he was just sat at a bus stop about to take his girlfriend home. And these two coked up lads, um, white lads, just called him the N-word across the road. He decided he'd walk to the next bus stop because he could see that they were out of it and, he, and drunk and he just wanted to get away rather than fight. They chased him through a park, put an axe through his head and killed him. Cut 15 years later, Jimmy agreed to tell the family story. Anthony Walker's mum, G Walker. G approached Jimmy and said, I want you to tell my boy's story. So we did. So Jimmy and I met with all of the family, police, everybody, and pieced together what happened and worked with the family who were just amazing people. And what Jimmy decided to do was to tell the story as if Anthony had lived. So when you first watch the drama... You meet this 35-year-old lad called Anthony who saved somebody's life. And then you go back to the point where he has his first baby. And then you go back to the point where he gets married. And then you go back to the point where he meets his wife. And then you go back and you end on the night, uh, at the night that that Mm. incident happens until his death. And it was an incredible piece about what is lost when somebody dies. I mean, an extraordinary way of telling that story. So that was like yeah. a dream job, really. Um, and then I got poached again to go to Can Can Productions. And that's doing drama and comedy. And that's the same thing, developing writers, developing their stories and turning them into series and pitching and then selling them. Yeah, I love this recurring theme of um, you constantly running towards the thing you're afraid of. I used to find making content in the studio in the BBC really dull. It's, it's, you know, everybody's behind the glass with a thousand knobs and buttons. You're there with the sound person and, you know, you have a little button to press to say thank you, we'll go again or whatever. And you've got the actors giving it large behind the glass and it's so distant. And I would always put myself in on the other side with the actors and just trust the sound people to get it right. So the way I make radio mm-hmm. drama, and I have since the day I stopped working at the BBC and started working on my own, is usually in my house. 
So I've had every actor in my bed doing a scene. (laughs) Um, And that's because if you're doing a bedroom scene, then you might as well hear the rustle of duvet. You might as well hear that thing where your voice is like that because you're lying down. And actors love it because the kitchen, I've always been looking for a kitchen that's big enough for a table. So that becomes the green room and the gossip room. Um, And then we just peel off around the house into the garden, out to the shed, up the road or whatever, you know, to do the scenes. Yeah. And there's a there's a lot of very practical audio advantages to recording in your house, especially if it's set in a house. You already have the acoustic of a house. You can have the reverberation of a kitchen. You can have the uh, quite dry sort of dead sound of a plush bedroom. Should that be what your bedroom's like? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it actually makes a lot of sense. And I believe... Eloise, who you worked with a lot, when you're doing outside bits, Eloise shoots yeah. in stereo, didn't she, as well? So she are also capturing the ambience. So it's sort of cutting down a little bit on the sound design at a later yeah. date as well. Yeah, and she's often found, like, wandering around the hills for the right kind of snow when it snows underfoot or whatever. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, Eloise is a genius. And what's great, when, when if it works, as you say, best when she's the person who is the sound engineer who records it and so she knows she's the one mixing it as well. So that, yeah. that works really well. I mean, there was, there was one example that I think was particularly – it's really interesting and really successful. And gosh, and it involved about 100 people from the local community. There is an actress called Maxine Peake who's a, a, based in the north of England and she's made loads of TV, radio. But uh, her partner had given her a book of this woman called Beryl Burton, who was a 1950s cyclist who was from Morley in Leeds who won against men. She was absolutely extraordinary. Across Europe, she was a kind of queen of cycling. And in England, nobody took her seriously. She said, I want to tell her story. And the, the sound of that, I think, was, and I think we won an award for I think we did. Um, but the sound was particularly joyous because we recorded it in the house because it was domestic. But we also recorded it on a bike. So uh, Max has got a really good bike. We mic'd her up and she, I mean, I live in a place called Saddleworth, which is in the hills outside Manchester, and it is really hilly and so we'd have Maxine she was sick once she really pushed herself cycling up a ridiculous hill from my house and then vomited at the top we recorded it all it was fantastic (laughs) the sound world of that was just fantastic because being outside worked the domestic settings worked as you say exactly how you describe it in a house and when we did the races what we did is there's a little village at the top called Dob Cross and I it was a Sunday morning and I just said to put something out on the local grapevine whatever it was to say we're doing this drama we need an audience we're going to do a race a cycling race and what we really need is a real crowd because we can add crowd noise but it would just be much better to have them reacting as she passed so there was about 60 people turned up to the local pub at the top called the swan Hmm. and we did a few scenes in the pub where this character gets the awards and then we did lots of her cycling back and cheering and then we sort of tripled the amount of cheers and so on but it was just fantastic because it felt like making tv with all the ease and simplicity of making mm-hmm. radio. The drama basically is about her telling her that it's a life story. Her husband was alive. So we went to record him. He's now in his 70s and uh, Charlie's called. And we just recorded him and said, just tell us about. It was a way to grab, gather content for the script, really, beyond the book. But what we realized was he has mm. this gorgeous voice, beautiful calm a voice that you can hear smiling one of those voices he told us the story of his life with his wife and how he she would be 
in, I don't know, going over to France and he would, you know, sleep in the ditches and hitchhike over there just to support her. And it it was a real love story, actually. We threaded his story through the whole drama and then you got the sound of the cycling and then you got the sound of the races. I thought the sound world was just, was the main thing about that. You know, I mean, it was a great idea that Max had. Mm. She wrote it beautifully, but it was... Yeah, the sound was the thing, and it's it's almost like a character in it in itself. It's like a a, part, a huge character in it. It was really, it was a special one mm. to do actually. And of all of them I've done, that is one of the ones that I really remember. That's what that's what I love about your work is the sound is like a character. None of your pieces are just a, a play on the radio. They they exist within a very clearly defined world, and 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 they have fabulous sound design. And, and wonderful music. To me, what's inspiring, actually, is that you're telling women's stories, several women on the team telling this story of somebody who's not so well known, but who who is, you know, significant and whose story should be known and who is who is a trendsetter and a, and a pioneer. Yeah. And there was another one. So Max then said that went really well. Let's Maxine said, Let, let's do another one. And she said, I really want to tell the story of Four women who occupied a mine during the miners' strike. Now, you know, the miners' strike, the main part of it was in the 80s and a lot of mines were closed. And then a group group of women, one of them who was Anne Scargill, so she's known predominantly because she was married to Arthur Scargill, who was the big trade union leader of the time for the miners. And basically what happened is these four women decided to sneak down an open mine and hide in there and not come out and to let the world know that, you know, the protest of trying to save these remaining mines. So we recorded these four women and they're now in their 50s and 60s. And the extraordinary thing is one of them died short just after we'd recorded it. We went to the house and they told us the story of what happened. All of these brilliant, strong women. These are women who weren't allowed to become emancipated in the in World War Two because because they, the miners' effort stays at home, whereas the miners' strike happened mm. and there was literally no money coming in for a huge amount of time, and the women galvanised. They ordered food drops, they ordered food kitchens, they ordered soup kitchens, and they kept the strike going. So we recorded their stories. We then had the shape for the drama, which was then sneaking out down the mine, going down the mine, and then being down the mine, and then coming back up. And of course, they didn't win. The mines were still closed. But we asked them about this in the audio recording. And I sort of said, you know, how do you feel in a way what you did? It didn't work. You failed. And they, one of them just said, we failed, but at least we tried. And that, it's going to make me go now, but that is almost like a fridge magnet for me. You know, it's that kind of... We failed, yeah. but at least we tried. I mean, I think, mm. you know, if, if, if I were to not have a long life, I, I would say at least she tried would be on my tombstone. <laughs> so we recorded it the same way. We recorded it mostly at my house. And these four women came to the recording. So we recorded it with the actors. But beforehand, I just thought, you know what, we're going to push this. And Kellingly Mine was still open. And Kellingly Mine was where one of the women associated with these four one of the last mines to stay open and one of these women's sons had gone down the mine to keep it open but because he was surrounded by miners who hadn't used to been working for a while he got he's one of the few left miners left but there was a rock fall because these were inexperienced miners now and he died so it was really poignant this particular Mm. mine but i managed to get all of the actors 
to go down the mine and see and feel what it was like to go down the mine. The, the mine closed about a year later. And um, so we all got dressed in these boiler suits mm. and went down and recorded some of the sounds that, so again, same sound designer, Eloise Whitmore, who's a genius, recorded the signs of getting all of your clobber on, going down the mine shaft, and then the sound inside a mine is obviously quite a unique sound. All of the actors, I think, felt that was quite special. And I think we it really bonded us with the original women. And then when we recorded it a few weeks later, the women came to the record, shared their stories, and we recorded it partly down a cellar in Cholton to get that. God knows whether it sounded mm-hmm. any different than anywhere else, but it felt different. And then we also recorded it in my house. And I have this, there's this one moment, and again, it's the music, that they used to sing this song, and I've got a really croaky voice, so I probably can't do very well, but the words are, we are women, we are strong, we are fighting for our lives, side by side with the men, we work the nation's minds. Something like, we struggle for the future, we struggle for the past, and it's here we go, we're the women of the working class. It's a gorgeous song. So what I did is I got them outside the house into the street, into the little lane where the house was, and got these four older women singing this song mm. and it was absolutely electric you got the actors watching we as you know myself the producer and the sound designer ellie watching and maxine the writer and these four women singing this song and they just lived it and we, the actor God, it's gonna make me cry but the actors joined in as well singing this sort of you know really strong song outside and a friend of mine who was there took a photograph and when I saw the photograph at the end of the day what I didn't realize is that my daughter was there who was nine at the time she was looking out of it was in the photograph she was looking out of the window of the house down onto these four old women who had lived this experience and the four actors who were playing them in the role and I just thought that if I could have ever given my daughter a gift of saying, you can be, you know, just keep going and just fight for what you need to fight for, that was it. That was absolutely encapsulated. Mm. And it was around the music, the power of those songs. But we got the whole of um, Saddleworth Male Voice Choir to sing one of these songs that the miners would sing as they're coming up through the mines. And then we added that into the mix of the piece. Mm-hmm. And again, the male voice choir I mean you know how fantastic the sound of male voice choirs is but the fact that it was a local working class you know area a local town singing this and then adding that into these women going up from the mines and up out it was just uh, greater than the sum of its parts really it's really interesting to hear how much you bring the community in and, and how much your work is all about collaboration, not just with each other, but also with the actual people whose stories you're telling, as well as it must be a real joy for those people as well to have the opportunity to be part of these kinds of projects. You know, the the men's choir. And it's, if I remember correctly, I think you two worked on on a piece where a local choir was involved. Is that right? Her Leeds Liturgical Choir. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that, was, that was another brilliant one. Do you want to talk about that, Steve? That won an award for that drama. It did, the award-winning a- Amazing Grace, which is now one I'm going to put on my CV. <laughs> <coughs> the award didn't go to me, though. But um, <laughs> Well, I was lucky enough that you invited me to contribute music to uh, one of your radio dramas called Amazing Grace, which was a... A fabulous story about an asylum seeker in uh, Leeds and finding a home again with a community, a very different community from where she came, but a sort of a 
a white Anglican community who embraced her. And in conversation, we ran with that idea of of this um, slightly exotically fused Anglican choir. So the music we came up with for that, we, we had performed by the Leeds Liturgical Choir, as we said, recorded by my friend Paul Thompson. And then we, there were little stings and interludes in there that, that were sung by Onico here and, and performed on piano by Kingsley Ash. And there was also a recording session with these school children near where you live, Justine. Yes, that's what about that. <laughs> yeah. I Again, it's bringing that. in yeah, the community. Right. It's so cool. Well, I mean, the, the story of Amazing Grace, it was a, a, a writer's first ever commission. You're not really supposed to get the woman's hour, the five by 15 slots on Radio 4 if it's your first time as a writer. So, But I just basically said, this writer's so good, if we don't take her now, you'll never get her. Um, she's amazing. Mm. She is. She's called Michelle Lipton. And she had worked as a, uh, a legal secretary for a law firm who did support asylum seekers and refugees. It was a sort of amalgamation of a story that she could never track down and various other stories. But the idea was that Grace was a mother in the Sudan and when her village was burnt, she managed to grab two of her children and run and save their lives, but two were left behind. And so she ended up in Britain and then her community was being connected to the church, as you mentioned, Steve. But she spent all of her time going through, going, trying to find her children through the Red Cross. So the way that was recorded was we did hear that these children were alive. We could hear them in the sound world of a refugee camp out in, I think they were in France or somewhere they'd been moved to, the two boys. And that was done in studio because you can't do that with the sound of, you know, traffic on the A62. So that was recorded Mm -hmm. in a studio in London with the actor Greg Wise. And then we recorded everything else in, oh my God, we recorded it in my mother-in-law's house in North London who was very, very delighted because one of the actors in it was Patricia Routledge. And um, it was the elections and she was a staunch conservative and the rest of us were all very woolly left liberals. It was an interesting record. (laughs) But yeah, the story is her fight to get the children back and then her fight to the courts to keep them. So it was a really good drama with tons of grit and so on. But yes, there was a lot of music because it was around the church, because of Grace and her voice. And Wumi Masaku is an actress who has a stunning, I mean, she's just got a gorgeous voice. And so it just made sense to build that in, really. Mm. So we did more, didn't we, Steve? I think it was just lots of conversations about where we could put Steve saw the script early, where we could put the music in, how it could grow, how it could be on. And things like recording the kids was just, let's just, let's just, once we've got that theme of, you know, voices and sharing through these songs, let's, let's keep that going. And again, that was something where I think I got a lot from, again, from you, Steve, saying this would be the kind of music, this would be the sound, this was... This would. This is how many times it could fit in. This is how we could use music to sort of um, enhance the drama, really. And I, whilst I knew that that would probably be a good thing, I hadn't really got a clue how. So you were sort of involved. It was an mm. interesting mix of you working with Eloise on this music of the sound design. There was a kind of both sort of sh- shared that vision, really. And then you did your section and she pieced yeah. it all together in the edit, really. But yeah, gosh, you know, it's interesting that my favourite ones all involve music. And it was a really privileged position I found myself in with that because uh, I did already know the script before we went into recording and I knew the, the script before I'd started writing. And I had chats with Michelle about some of the background that's not written into the drama, which ethnic group the character belonged to and things. And I went away and did research. I found some old Smithsonian recordings of music from tribes that 
the, the character may have come from. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was sort of you could really immerse yourself into it and and sort of taking bits of language and and phoneticizing it. The, the music was kind of based on the music of the language of the Dinka people. A lot of people in sound design and music get a, okay. It, here's the finished article. Off you go. But if there is a if there's an early collaboration, it's better. Full stop. Really. Yeah. I mean, you can make it work. I did. Um, a drama not so long ago with I'm going to get her name pronunciation wrong so I'm going to ask you to tell me Lorena what's Lorena's last name? Shablevichute <laughs> Brilliant I'm not going to repeat that I'm going to let Aniko claim that one and Lorena <laughs> is a, a brilliant pianist I asked I did a project where a writer had written this story only an eight minute piece it's her first BBC commission she was from Northern Ireland Ballymena the piece was about uh, it was for Radio 3 commissioner where music made a difference in somebody's life and the story was about a man who had dementia and couldn't remember most of the basic things in his life but his fingers carry carried music memory and so when he played all his forgotten life disappeared and so all it was was a single voice of this man unremembering and remembering through music and talking about his how it feels the dementia so it was a single voice monologue and then the revel underneath it and what the way we did that is we recorded Lorena actually at the RNCM in Manchester I mean ridiculous it was like a seven minute piece with a brand new writer and she said well I'm from Ballymena in Northern Ireland and you know I imagine somebody like Liam Liam Neeson who was like wasn't he a Jedi or something in Star Wars I mean he's like you know he's he's a proper grown-up when it comes to acting she said we'd written with somebody like him in mind and I sort of cheekily thought well let's just ask let's start let's ask him first and then see. So I contacted this agent mm. in New York with no chance. And I got an email back saying, yeah, go on, I'll do it. So I directed him down the line from New York. And he was an hour and a half late and it was his birthday. And of course, I'm sat outside in the office and I've got my headphones on and I'm just listening to his voice do this beautiful drama. And then we weave the music on and underneath later in post-production. Mm. And he's, God, he I didn't realise he had a sexy voice until I had him in my ears directing him. I could hardly cope. He's just got one of those. I didn't think I was hot beforehand, but my God, when you're just listening. Whew. Yeah. In fact, I, remember, I don't know where they are. I must find them. I made him record a series of phone ringtone comments that um, with his voice. I can't remember what I got him to do because he had such a sexy voice. I just thought I'm just going to ask him. But it was another one of those of just ask. They might say no. They'll probably say yes. Yeah. There's radio, they don't have to get makeup on, they don't have to turn up, they don't have to do costume. But it was a, a pleasure because I think Lorena enjoyed the process of, of doing it because she had to do all sorts of things like collapse on the piano and, and falter and things, which I think is quite hard for somebody who's so good and exacting to do. Mm. But then when we put it together, it really worked. And her, both those performers are so exceptional that it was, gosh, it was lovely. I would have loved to have yeah. got them in a room together, but... You have it all. I'm sure Lorena wouldn't have minded either. No. <laughs> Gosh, you know, I must thank you for this because it's made me really look at radio again. It just makes me realise what a joy it was to do that and how, how lucky I've been actually to work with some pretty extraordinary people over the years. Um, you don't kind of realise while you're doing it mm-hmm. and then it's only when you look back. And I'd not really thought about how music has shaped it all because it's not where I personally start really interesting so i owe you for this thank you i'll think about them differently from now on <laughs> justine how would our listeners find you online 
at Savvy Justine on Twitter and at Savvy Justine on Instagram. And where can we find you, Aniko? I'm at Coco Vocals and CocoVocals.com. Well, I'm at, at Sound Factory. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly enough. Uh, it's been amazing to chat to you, Justine. Thanks it's so been, much yeah, for giving brilliant. us your time and sharing your stories. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Justine. It's been great to chat with you.